0: Americans United is Fighting Back. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb. And then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but We love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, but anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions, compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40 minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. This week we're re releasing an episode from 2018 with Rebecca Given, an associate professor of labor studies and employment relations at Rutgers University, where I ask her Are unions a good bargain? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Menace. I'm very excited this week because we're hearing so much right now about trade unions. I feel like over my life I've heard a lot about like unions. I-, I think Jimmy Hoffa. I think I think Mob. I think I don't I don't know what a union is. Like I'm a f- millennial. So I brought in an amazing professor, you're full of knowledge, Rebecca Given. Right. Yeah, I, I nailed it. You nailed it. Oh, thank God I didn't put like too much emphasis on the on the "van" part. It's so, like given. No, it's just given. I love that. So, could, what do you want me to call you? Like Professor Given? Do you want me to call you Rebecca? Rebecca. What, okay, Rebecca. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Um, So, you know, unions, what are they? Are they
1: something from the 40s? Are they, why does the Supreme Court seem to hate them? Like, what's going on? Those are great questions. Unions uh, were actually at their biggest in the 40s. So you're totally right to wonder if they're something from the 40s. And they also have this funny reputation throughout our history where people think Jimmy Hoffa, or maybe they think of auto workers in Michigan from, you know, 50 years ago. But there are still about 50, Fifteen million Americans in unions. Um, More than one in 10 of us workers are in unions. And at the most sort of basic level, unions are just groups of working people who come together to speak in one voice because they can speak more effectively when they go to their bosses for something together than if you as an individual go to your boss and say, you know, uh, I'm really struggling to get by. I need a raise, or I noticed a safety problem at work. So unions are just um, working people coming together uh, in bigger groups, and it could be a group of two, or it could be a group of hundreds of thousands of people. So, um, and unions are very much uh, a presence in in our workplaces, in our economy, from teachers that we've seen go out on strike to uh, people in uh, in across in all the Hollywood. Uh, production houses to um, all kinds of all kinds of areas Um, the engineers that design Boeing planes are union members all kinds of places we find people who have come together at work to say you know what we think we can be more effective if we come together like the public transport I feel like is exactly transport is very very heavily unionized and um, they work not just on you know you can imagine they would come together to get better wages but they also do things like pointing out safety issues right where you can safely speak up at work if you have the protection of a union to say, I noticed something that might be unsafe for workers, but also for passengers. So, like,
0: where did unions get their power and how did they wield them in their heyday?
1: That Those are great questions. So... Um, back before we had what we consider the New Deal laws that gave us all kinds of workplace rights and really happened primarily in the 1930s, um, it was kind of uh, chaotic because working people would come together and they would walk out on strike. The strike would be illegal. There would be no sort of legal or institutional way for managers to say, hey, let's sit, let's talk, let's bargain a contract. People would go on what we call wildcat strikes, which is where they just walk off the job because they're mad. They haven't voted for a strike. They just say, we're done. Um, and in the 30s, they said, you know, that's kind of a problem for the economy for American industry to have everything be so chaotic. Um, and so let's create some sort of ground rules, some legal structures to say uh, if you want to have a union, you have to you have to vote in the union, um, and the employer has to agree to negotiate and we'll have a negotiating procedure. and if you want to go on strike, you'll vote for a strike. Um, and when that legislation came into place, it was the National Labor Relations Act. Um, it actually promoted collective bargaining, which is funny now because most government entities don't, don't really promote unions and collective bargaining. They might say they're sort of fine, but they don't say, like, they're preferred. But then they were preferred because if you want successful companies and industries, you want a way to stop people going out on strike, right? So at that point, um, the laws really promoted collective bargaining and tons of unions uh, sprung up or got bigger. Lots and lots of workers organized Um in 1947, there was some pushback, uh, especially from southern states who uh, wanted to limit workers' rights, especially uh, the workers that have always been discriminated against, so especially black word workers. Um, and so some of those workers were excluded, but um, we had stronger protections. When some of
0: those workers were excluded.
1: Yeah, so it's a really interesting story. So the New Deal legislation I mentioned, there's the legislation promoting unions, but there's also things like... Um, What the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is how you get overtime if you work, you know, over a certain number of hours, how you're how you're entitled to overtime. Right and um in in congress the southern senators uh really didn't want to give power to black workers and to form unions or to get paid better and so what they did was they said where are black workers mostly found well they're found primarily in agriculture and domestic work disproportionately not necessarily primarily and so uh still to this day agricultural workers and domestic workers actually don't have any of those workplace rights. Uh, they have a few workplace rights, I should say, but they don't have these rights to things like overtime. Um, but they still form unions, right? So one of the interesting things about unions is there are laws that say, you know, these are the people who can come together and vote in a union. But what we saw like in the teacher strikes is even people uh, who didn't have that right uh would do it anyway. They'd say, you know what? We're mad. Education's been underfunded in our state. We're going to walk off. We're going to go on strike. So there's this tension between what's legally allowed, the institutions that have been created, and people just acting because they're frustrated, they're fed up, they're mad, and they can't see any other strategies other than going out on strike.
0: So how did, um? you know, it seems like, you know, unions were kind of created by the government in the 40s to help prevent, like, you know, uh, quick disruptions in transportation and, you know, I would imagine, like, banking, education, blah, blah, blah. And so when did they really start to try to come in and chip away at the rights of unions and, and the ability of them to really function? Like, when did they become, like an so, an and, and, yeah. and enemy or whatever.
1: So it's been re- it's been really gradual over time, but um, some of the families that you're familiar with that we consider sort of the dark money in politics the Kochs, the Broad family, the Waltons, all of the those Broad? yep, De- like the museum people, those people, the DeVos family. Um, they don't have a museum. Well, they may have a museum. I don't or know. But the Broad
0: does, and yeah, the those Brode has.
1: Yeah, they put a lot of money. Into fighting unions, and they do it in a number of ways. They do it at the state level where they say we're going to change the laws. Um, In Missouri, there was just an attempt to change the laws to make it harder to unionize, and the people voted and they said, No, we want it to be easier for unions. We don't want it to be harder for unions. So, the same kinds of. And is that
0: essentially not to keep interrupting you, but is that essentially because? You know, these big families with dark or the big families with the money, like they run corporations. And if unions are able to chip away at the profits on a corporation, like if if the family or the, you know, the corporate side of it's keeping 80 percent of the profits and the workers are like, hey we think that we should get like 40% and you can have 60% or whatever. The family was like, well, we don't want to lose our 20% too, so we're going to make this legally harder for you.
1: Yeah, they um, they don't want to pay workers more. And we know workers and unions get paid about 20% more than workers without unions. So that's very significant if you think about what you're, what you're taking home. So they don't want to pay workers more. And then unions, one of the things unions do as well as bargaining in the workplace is they do advocacy and lobbying. So teachers advocate for better public education funding. And so a lot of these, these families A lot of these big corporations, they don't want corporate taxes that would pay for sort of public goods like like education. So they feel that by uh, chipping away at union rights, making it harder and harder for workers to organize unions, even if they clearly want them. And we know that many workers who don't have unions want them. um, They will kind of be more and more profitable. They'll have lower corporate taxes and they won't have to pay their workers as much.
0: With the thing that just happened in Missouri. So there was a law that was passed that... That was going to make it harder for unions to unionize, mm-hmm. and then there and then there was a referendum that was like, "Hey, we don't want this law." And then that referendum is what passed.
1: Yeah. So what we see, which is really interesting, is there all of these this, as I said, chipping away at the ability for workers to have unions and at things like minimum wage laws and all of that. But what we also see, and this is where millennials come in, every time it's put to a vote, people say, "Yes, I want to vote for uh, a higher minimum wage," or in this case, "Yes, I want to vote for it to be easier." Not harder for people to have unions and be represented at work. So there's this tension between the sort of money that drives a lot of uh, politics at the state and the federal level. And then if you actually ask people what they want, so people think unions should have more influence, it should be easier, more people should be able to be in unions. um, But then there are these very well resourced entities that are that are that are trying to stop that,
0: which are like the coke, the Cokes of the world, the big, the big exactly. buddies of the world, exactly. Um, and so what does the? Well, I guess really what I'm trying to, what I'm asking is like, how do unions work when they are functioning in a like?
1: Yeah, so it's a yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I think you know, a lot of people have never been exposed to unions. They may never have had a family member in a union. Um, basically, unions do kind of three things, which. Uh, are kind of under the category of collective bargaining, which is they bargain a contract that covers everybody. Um, They also do the advocacy that I mentioned. And then the third thing they do is what we kind of consider, like we can call it mutual aid. All that means is helping people. It could be anything from a little welfare fund that is a hardship fund to providing your health insurance, right? So um, one interesting uh, thing that happened, and then I'll come back to how unions work Uh, is um, there's been uh, a a big growth in the marijuana industry, especially in states where it's legalized. And so there's a union called the UFCW that's trying to say, you know what, these are retail workers, these are agricultural workers, these are low-wage workers, we should see if they want a union. And there's one boss who said, you know what, I wanted to provide health insurance for my workers, but I can't because the federal government doesn't think I'm a legal business, even though the state of Washington does. And so he worked with the union to say, let's get them union health insurance, right? So there are some really cool things where bosses actually can recognize, you know, the union can be good for everyone.
0: But right, they're not a threat. They're, they're like, not
1: a threat. They're helpful. The boss wants the workers to have health insurance. They'll be happy. They'll be healthy. They'll stay longer. They won't quit to go get another job with better benefits. Yeah. So there are many reasons why bosses might want the benefit of a union. But- I guess in terms of how they work, um, the you know the workers come together and kind of talk about what they want, and eventually that uh, is sort of funneled into this collective bargaining process, which is where you negotiate a contract that covers a whole set of workers, and it might say, you know, it might say. Uh, what your days off are, it might say what your work process is. It usually has a lot of transparency about pay. So instead of having that sort of arbitrary thing where you don't know what the person next to you is getting paid and they negotiate it individually, the pay is kind of set on a scale that might be based on your experience, your skills, your job title, your role all of that. And they bargain that. So in the best case scenario, everybody's had a chance to put their input and say, you know what, it's really important to me to have flexible working hours because I'm a parent. And sometimes I leave early to pick my kid up from school. Um, so I'm going to prioritize that when we come to bargaining. And the other person says, you know, I'm an older worker. I'm getting close to retirement. I want to make sure our retiree benefits are prioritized. So they all come together collectively and negotiate. And depending um, how uh, willing the management is to negotiate with them, but also how much leverage they have, how strong they've proven themselves to be, they'll get a contract that hopefully will be will be good for the members and for the workers.
0: So does each union kind of have like a board
1: Yeah, so the unions are democratic and legally they have to be. So they have, you know, they'll have... Uh, a vice president and a president of the local, but then they'll also often elect their negotiating committee um, so that everybody has a chance to sort of vote on who their representatives are that are going to talk to management. And it's often those like workplace leaders, like every job you've had, you know, there's that person who really knows what's going on. They are the person you ask for advice for uh, if there's something you're not sure about. And often those people can be end up being in union leadership positions because they're kind of naturals.
0: Okay. So basically, so they legally have to be democratically elected so that you can like get that kind of like i imagine her like red and orange is the new black but not in prison you know yeah yeah um is it's so, like the reds of the group exactly kind of, like, who ends up being like your negotiating person and exactly and that's how it works okay cute so i feel like i have like a much better working understanding of how this works but i want to get into another gorgeous can of worms which is going to come up right after this break you guys so not to leave you hanging but listen to our gorgeous commercials they're going to be entertaining they're going to be as insightful as you can make a commercial. And, you know, so just strap in your seatbelts, hold on tight, and we'll be right back with more Getting Curious after this. If you're like me, the threat of fascism is weighing on you this year. But even when the F word is uttered, way too few of us are considering the full scope of the danger, let alone how to really stop it. The Refuse Fascism podcast hosted by Sam Goldman names it, dissects it, and connects in-depth analysis of what fascism is with the understanding and urgency we need to defeat it. And she is joined by great guests to discuss the threat of civil war, attacks on abortion rights and trans rights, Trump and the Theocrats, Project 2025, efforts to erase history and critical thinking, and much more. Check out recent episodes featuring Kathleen Ballou, Jeff Charlotte, Sarah Posner, Wajahat Ali, Dahlia Lithwick, and many more. Subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice or go to refusefascism.org slash podcast. Let's face it. I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We are with Professor Rebecca Givens. And what what are Rebecca Givens? Is singular? What are you a professor of?
1: That's a great question. I am a professor of labor studies and employment relations, so I think about, research about, teach about basically work all day long.
0: Love it. That almost leaves me speechless when I think about it cuz as a, you know, as a hairdresser, my goal was to always get the fuck out of any sort of that. <laughs> Uh, you know, lifestyle, yep. not the teaching, but like any, sal- like any mandatory salon meeting, mm-hmm. I literally would find myself in a corner doing like crunches or like push-ups on like a cutting stool or like just or like fidgeting. Like I, I really don't love mandatory group
1: of meetings. So let me ask you, when you had a mandatory meeting you were probably an independent contractor and you probably didn't get paid for the, for the mandatory no. meeting, right? So that's a really big issue. Independent contractors usually uh, have no ability to, to uh, form unions. We talked about those excluded workers and freelancers, and it's a really complicated got gray Because I straight area. up
0: abused in yeah. like a lot of my jobs, I feel like, I mean, it was like a
1: not... Yeah, cool. And from and all kinds of workers, from Uber drivers to uh, UFC mixed martial arts fighters, are legally or are classified by the people they're doing the work for as independent contractors, so they don't have any of the rights of employees. But for I also overtime, don't really mind, but,
0: but I also don't care because I don't have to go to fucking meetings now because I have my own little salon. So I don't have to deal with any of that stuff. And people not to cuss, but you know
1: people who are independent contractors, some of them truly should be classified as independent contractors. You're independent, you can set your hours, you can set your location, all of that. And some of them it's sort of questionable and this woman yeah yeah, because
0: yes, because actually this one salon where I worked at you had to be independent contractor, but then like she wanted you there for certain hours and wanted like all this stuff, but it like wasn't really Truly yeah independent and, you and probably it was also really been... fucked up because she wouldn't let you buy your own hair color so then you couldn't even like you couldn't write off your yep. stuff like you couldn't like write off your stuff even though you're like it, she was really the worst
1: yeah and actually now in the gig economy when that's proliferating there are a lot of uh, what's, what's that mean the gig economy is things like uber and TaskRabbit and a lot of the app-based uh programs where people are sort of Uh, The apps matchmake you. So if you're an Uber driver, they matchmake you with a passenger. And so they say you're just an independent contractor, but actually Uber sets all these rules, what kind of car you have to have, how much you have to drive, all of that. So there's a lot of legal cases working through the courts about... Are they really independent contractors? If that's their or primary source they... of income exactly. and they're doing it like 40 hours a week, And it's et the main business of the company, they're supposed to use independent contractors for things Random that aren't stuff. their core. Exactly. And so there's a lot of questions, and we don't know how all those legal cases will be settled. And
0: with like even like Glam Squad and stuff, like if you're yeah. doing like if you're doing exactly house call the... beauty stuff.
1: Yep, that's all gig economy stuff. If it's,
0: but also, it's like, you know, and I think this is the classic differentiation between, like, Republicans and Democrats is that, like, in my mind, mm-hmm. a Republican would be more, like, hands off, don't legislate that. Like, let the glam squads work. Let yeah. the Ubers work. Let mm-hmm. the Airbnbs yeah. work. Like, let these – like, let them yeah, – let, what- it, let it prosper and, like, don't regulate it too much. And whereas a Democrat would say, like, well, you know, some mm-hmm. of these workers are having, like – you know, there's abuse right. taking place and there's like unsafe conditions. and
1: Right. And historically, the main way that we've been able to let workers fight back against abuses is letting them come together. So if you say to people, you can't be a union, you can't come together and say, you know, this is unsafe or why are you allowed to dr- to drive passengers around for so many hours, even when you might be overtired and unsafe on the road? Um, The best way to fix things like that is by letting workers uh, be in unions. If you don't have the protection of a union, even if you are classified as an employee, you can be fired pretty much at any time for any reason or no reason at all. You have basically no protections with just a few small exceptions. So I wonder
0: if there's ever a world where you could like... um remove the whole independent contractor thing from being able to be unionized
1: exactly so that's something that people are working on there's a case in Seattle actually the teamsters have been working with the drivers from from Uber and and all the other uh app-based driving services to say, you know what? It shouldn't matter. You should still be able to unionize. These these, uh, drivers still deserve to come together collectively and have some protection when they advocate for themselves, for their passengers, for road safety, for all those things. And also, like, these massage apps and
0: beauty apps. Because I do think it's, like, the idea of, like, I've worked for salons where it was, like, commission, um, Mm -hmm. and then it would... Like, it's one thing if it's, like, 50-50, but it's another thing if it's, like, 20-80. And I think a lot of these house call places, because they are hooking you up with the client, like... I, I don't know exactly how it works. I'd imagine there's like a sliding scale sort of a thing, but I do feel like those people need to be able to like come together. Yeah.
1: And right now they're totally excluded unless they can get themselves classified as employees to come together. And if, you, if you're if you an employee and you start working with your coworker on unionizing, you actually have the protection where legally they're not allowed to fire you for, say, for working with them. But if you're, um, you know, a glam Scott squad or a massage app, um and they say you're not an employee they can just kick you off the app which looks to everybody like being fired but they say you can't be fired you weren't an employee so there's a lot of questions you also don't have all the workplace protections against things like sexual harassment um if you're not classified as, em- as an employee so there's a lot of problems and there's some creative solutions out there although um as you picked up on there's a lot of uh, people who say no no we don't want more regulation we don't even if it's working to protect people
0: um yeah, well, I mean, and I think that that can be problematic because I think that, like, I am, I do feel I identify as a Democrat, but like, I definitely have experienced and seen where overregulation and, like, with Obamacare that happened. I think that that did kind of, I mean, I want healthcare for people, but also, like, you know, making people had, like, the 50 employees and over there were so many companies that had like 53 employees 60 employees that had to like fire people in order to like to be able to so i think with regulation that does there are real world consequences where like businesses are impeded from thriving because things are over regulated and i so i I, but i don't know what the sweet spot is sometimes i think that like you know the left comes in too fast and too hot and then the right like doesn't come in enough
1: yeah and i think in the i mean in the case of unions, we've moved so far away from unions, uh, sort of as a country. And there's lots of examples of unions being good for the workers and for the management, right? So union unionized workplaces not only do they have better wages, which uh, which is great for workers, and and management may not like it, but they also have you know people stay in their jobs longer, they have better safety records. So hospitals with unionized nurses have uh, better healthcare outcomes, right? So oh, that's there are lots cool. of yeah, there are lots of ways in which um, you know unions can make uh, things better for everyone. Construction sites unionized construction sites are much 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 safer. So when we have a lot of non union construction, you have workers dying. So there are a lot of places where, um, in a way, having a union is sort of, um, it's not a massive form of regulation because you're actually negotiating. You're not saying you have to do things one way or you have to do things another way. You're saying you have to let your workers speak collectively and then you negotiate with them and figure it out. So maybe you want this kind of health insurance or maybe you want that kind of health insurance. It's not imposed by the government.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I well and I think that I'm not I don't think I'm conflating like unionized stuff with regulating stuff. I'm just trying to yeah. imagine like how politically politicians would would approach unions. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, Democrats have generally supported unions, but um, not as strongly as they have. And, you know, half a century ago, Republicans didn't oppose unions as strongly as they as they as they do now, but everything is so much more polarized, and it's sort of every everything is is uh, in opposition. The Koch brothers have some uh, unionized workplaces in their conglomerate, right? So you wouldn't necessarily expect that, um, but you know there are some strange, I guess, bedfellows. Um, although the Koch brothers are very very anti union, but there are cases where. Other uh, well, unions, in they, workplaces. well, yeah, but
0: that's probably just because, like, legally they w- they have employees and, like, and they, they came have together to, yeah, and unionized, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I guess I'm not really that doesn't surprise me as much. Yeah. One thing that I'm curious about is what happens when unions go bad? Are you able to, what if you are at a workplace where there's a union where you don't like how it's governed or you don't like how it is? Are you allowed to be at the workplace, yeah, and not, um. Like, because I think that was like a case that I remember hearing about at NPR where it was like there was a workplace union where someone didn't want to be a part of it and they didn't. But then the union was still collecting mandatory fees.
1: Exactly. So this is something that this is the case that just went to the Supreme Court and ruled uh, in June of this year where um, unions... The legal, the legal structures say that if you have a union in the workplace, let's say you have a union of nurses in a hospital. That union has to represent all the nurses in the hospital. Um, and they don't all have to be members, but they're all covered by that collective bargaining agreement. They're all covered by the wages that you that you negotiate and everything else. And it used to be that before the Supreme Court case, it's called Janus. Well, it still is the case that the unions represent everyone, but it used to be they could collect some of their costs for collecting everyone. They called At a fair share fee. So it wasn't full union dues, but it was a percentage of that to say, you know what, we're negotiating on your behalf. If you have a problem and need to bring a complaint, if you get disciplined and we represent you, we're going to do all those things that cost money. So we're going to collect this sort of fair share fee. And um, that case, which was brought by the the you know, it was funded by the think tanks that are funded by the Koch brothers. It wasn't just someone who an idea occurred to him at work one day. They said, uh, "We don't want to pay fair share fees. We want unions to have to spend their money to represent us, to negotiate our wages, to help us if we have a disciplinary problem, and we want to bring a case." Um, but we're going to bring a constitutional challenge, and and they won. So now unions have to represent everybody. This is applies to public sector work, so state employees, teachers that kind of thing. Unions still have to do all the work that costs them money for everybody, but um they don't get to collect some of those fees. Um so that's, you know, that's now uh public sector workers can opt out of paying fees but still receive the benefits, which is again this way that it sort of tries the the uh, anti-union forces try to attack unions and say no we're going to make you do work that you can't recover any resources for so we're going to try to, you know, bankrupt you if we possibly can.
0: Right. And then, would the, what does the union do with that now? Like, or do they yeah. can they try to collect like you know voluntary fees? Yeah,
1: exactly. So what they want to do? But then
0: could they like light your ass in like in public and be like, well, it's a voluntary fee, but like Susie in in row twenty four <laughs> didn't pay it, and neither did Carl in row twenty five yeah, or whatever. And here's a list of the people who didn't pay abs- it.
1: They absolutely could, and most unions believe in sort of you know solidarity and coming together and being supportive. So uh, I don't think that's the first thing they're going to do is try to really embarrass people. The thing they're going to try to do is what we call organizing, right? Talk to your workers. Why why, uh, why do you think it's good to have a union here? You know, maybe you're in a unionized grocery store and you can compare what you have compared to what someone in a non-unionized grocery store have and say, you know, if nobody pays in, if everybody's what we call a free rider, just riding on the goodwill of the people who are paying in, The union won't exist, and you'll be able to be fired for no reason. You won't have due process rights. You won't have any of those things. So you try to talk to those workers. You could embarrass them, and in some cases, um, that may be something people would consider. I would say the thing is to try to talk to them, to persuade them, to help them understand that if you're paying dues and they're not, you're actually subsidizing many of the advantages that they're getting, and that's kind of not fair. So just appeal to their sense of fairness. Or, you, I mean, you could shame them, I would say, appealing to... Sense of fairness uh, first, and then you shame first, second. Maybe shame second.
0: Yeah. So what is the argument for not like what is the really the argument against unions
1: that yeah i mean i think the argument against unions comes down to people who think that bosses should have all the power right and in this country we have really weak protections for workers who aren't in unions so i mentioned most workers are at will employees which means you can just be fired you know um You can be fired because I don't like the – even though we don't have a dress code, I don't like the color of your shirt. You wore a team hat for a team that I don't like, right? Most people can be fired for a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason at all. So bosses like that. They don't have to actually be fair. They don't have to be equitable. We've heard a lot about, like, pay inequality, right, where different workers are getting paid uh, different amounts in a way that might uh, be because of favoritism or discrimination And, um, you know, bosses like to keep that power. When you have workers acting collectively, it shifts the balance of power a little bit. And if you can come together and say, you know what, we're not going to take it anymore, right? We're not going to – we're either going to go on strike or we're going to make demands in another way or we're going to start to talk to customers. We're going to tell patients in a hospital that we have patient safety concerns and you're not listening to them, whatever it is. uh, It takes away power from the bosses. And in some cases, many cases, bosses say we want all the power. We want the power to pay you less or give you worse benefits or fire you for any reason at any time.
0: They always say trust your gut. But one time my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows and that was fashionable, but not widely well received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really uh confusing trying to untangle the web of like government versus like corporations and the handholding or bedfellows is you know if you will or as, as you will of like you know where like money and power and working in corporations yeah. and all of those things intersect yeah and then like human nature and yeah, it's really confusing the whole thing is like just a mess for some reason and in, in this my mind keeps coming back to um A worker in a workplace who has, like, a shitty union.
1: Yeah, so let me talk a little bit about that. I mean... Most workers don't have most jobs are either union or they're not. There's a union there or they're not. You start your job and you're t- you find out that there's a union or it's a non-union workplace. Most workers don't have the experience of participating in an organizing drive and getting the union. Those u- workers that do tend to understand a lot and and they're really engaged. But for most workers, you're here. Here I am at work and there's a union. And um, you know, we joke those of us who think about this that a lot of union leaders are what we call pale, male, and stale. Right? They're sort old white men. Maybe they've been in the leadership for, for longer. And so, you know, you have choices. You can disengage. You can just say, and, you know, union meetings are totally optional. You don't have to get involved. Or you can get involved. Um, they legally have to be democratic. So you can start talking to your co-workers. You can, you can take it over. You can say, you know, I want to demand more. Why is the leadership of my union Old and they're only focusing on retiree benefits where I'm young and I'm thinking about what's the educational benefit or what's the health insurance for dependents or other things. So one of the things you can do if you think that the union that already exists in your workplace is shitty is, um, you know, take it over, yeah. which is a really, a really cool thing. I and mean, there's a lot of um, young people who are thinking about either organizing new unions or taking over their unions. And actually some of the teacher strikes. So the big teacher strike a few years ago in Chicago that happened. After people felt that their union leadership wasn't particularly good, they voted them out. They got more active uh, un- and engaged union leadership in, and then they said, "You know, we're going to take this on. We're going to go on strike." So, because they have to be democratic, you always have the opportunity to get involved.
0: Love, and I guess too, if like if the government ever really like started to really like make, I mean, you can still like come together and make like a faux union.
1: Yeah, I mean, so a lot of times things that. Uh, look like unions aren't even recognized as unions. So when the teachers walked out in West Virginia, they don't have any uh, collective bargaining rights for public employees are mostly governed by the state law. And in West Virginia, most of those teachers, all those teachers don't have any legal right to collective bargaining. Um, And so so most of them weren't union members because, you know, if you don't have bargaining rights, a lot of people won't choose to join the union. But they acted like they were a union. Uh, They didn't have the right to strike. That was illegal. They said, you know what? We're mad. We've tried all the other options. This is the only way to make our voices heard. Um, and before all the legislation, all strikes were illegal, and people did it did all the any time of them anyway. Did lose their jobs? In West Virginia, no. And not only that, they got raises. They got better funding for public education. And they their strike was so solid that they actually got raises for all public employees in West Virginia, not just teachers. So oh, the show of strength is amazing, yeah.
0: So I guess it's like, because sometimes... When I read certain things in the news, I feel, like, really threatened or worried about certain things. So I guess just if we are reading about, like, I mean, you should still definitely be active. We should obviously, like, encourage, like, Mm -hmm. people to vote for unions. But it's, like, if there is, like, some random court case that you can't, like, become a lawyer about, you know, tomorrow and go defend, like, right now, like, know that there are we are a resourceful people and we will like figure out a way to protect ourselves. You can
1: always act collectively, even if you know, the laws keep clamping down on unions, people can always act collectively and people have, you know, strikes have, uh, have existed since the beginning of time, far before we had any legislation about them. Right. Right. So you can always, whether it's walk off the job, you know, make demands of your boss, refuse to work somewhere, talk to customers about working conditions, whatever it is, you can always, always do that regardless of the law. And I think that's really important.
0: Um, and then so, okay, I feel like that, I feel like that makes sense to me. What in your experience of, you know, being a professor or professor of like, of this, of labor studies and and all these things, like, what can you impart on, you know, young people or really any people in the workforce about the way that, you know, uh, the American economy continues to change and the way that, um, you know, labor is? Like, how can people be more successful? How can people be more resourceful? Like,
1: So it's, yeah, it's a great question. Right now, I mean, the economy is doing really well, but wages aren't going up. And one of the things that research really shows is that one of the reasons wages aren't going up is because workers have lost their power to bargain up wages, right? People take whatever wage their boss gives them. They don't have a union to, um, to kind of uh, negotiate for a better wage. And so, uh, wages have have really, you know, remained static even when the economy is booming and jobs are plentiful. Um, And one of the things that's really interesting is um, unionizing in sort of different areas of the economy. So like digital newsrooms, new media, different places where uh, people, where uh, kinds of work that didn't exist before. And people have said, you know what, newspapers have had unions forever. Why can't online publications have unions, right? And so there are these ways in which people are coming together and say, you know what, I want those protections. I don't trust my boss to do the right thing out of the goodness of her heart. And- um, um, I want to come together and uh, make sure that, that we're really protected. And I think right now, this sort of upsurge of activism, especially since 2016, people are really thinking harder and starting to understand, you know, wait, why can I be fired for any reason? That doesn't seem right. I can be fired for no good reason. And then they sort of understand that the main way to protect against that. Is uh, to form a union. We're getting, you know, small groups of workers, and you know, bakeries. Uh, you know, there's a burger uh, chain in out in the Pacific Northwest, Burgerville. That's the first fast food restaurant with a union. So, um, people are saying, you know what? This is an opportunity to reclaim some of those rights that are that are disappearing.
0: Yay! So that's great. So, um, I mean, I feel like, what about uh, in your? line of work, I mean, like, what do people really study about, like, labor? And and why is that important? And like, why should people get involved in like, what you study?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think work is a great thing to study, because it's a bit of everything. It's what most of us do for you know, at least a third of the hours in the day, sometimes more. And, you know, it reflects everything in society. So, you know, when we have racism and we have sexism or we have a sexual harassment epidemic or whatever it is, all of those things come out in the workplace and you can kind of go at it from every angle. You can look at the legal angle. You can look at a more sociological angle, psychology. Why are people so attached to their jobs? Why do they always want to please their boss? There's so many angles you can look at um, that to me, it's just it's just endlessly interesting And there's so many issues, you know, from immigration to elections where it all comes together and has an effect on people at work.
0: So where do you see, I mean, for me, I feel like, I mean, I'm not an economist, but I feel like some of the things that, that are going on in this economy, the hotness of it, the stock market, the numbers, it does feel very a la 2008. Like, I do feel like we could be on like the precipice of like... It feels like it could be crashy a little bit because it just feels so high, and I feel like we have like a crazy person, you know, running the country, and and it seems very corporate. And that and that bubble did burst when we rode that wave yep. last time. Yep. You know, it, it feels fast and it feels loose. Where do you see us going? Where do you think that? What do you think the temperature is? Like,
1: yeah, I mean, I think you know historically our economy goes in cycles, so it'll go up for a while, and then eventually it'll come down, and the people that will be hurt the most by it. Are the people that are the most vulnerable, right? So they're the people that are um, have uh, those lowest wage jobs that are the bottom of the pecking order that um, you know will potentially lose their jobs first, um, and um, and you know it will happen. I'm I'm not I'm not in the business of predictions, but it will happen. We don't know when, and sort of understanding what that means, what that looks like, and how. Uh, how the government, probably not this government, but a government can intervene to sort of soften the blow to say, you know what, if the economy's in a downturn and people... Are losing their jobs? Can we give better unemployment benefits that gives people more spending money that improves the economy? What else can we do, right? So, sort of understanding to me, that's where there is a role of government and sort of smoothing out the cycles. So, when they're up, you can collect more taxes and then you have money to help people when they're down to give people more spending money. But that's to, not even
0: like what they're doing at all right not now because at it's all. up right now and we're collecting we're, less taxes. That's
1: exactly right. I mean, right now, uh, the main agenda is sort of, you know, give uh, big business everything they want so lower taxes don't give their workers any rights because that might constrain what they can do and how much uh, they can profit so that's exactly right
0: what's that thing about like how because you know like unemployment continues to go down yeah But is that because more people are just, like, leaving the workforce and aren't even taking those surveys or something?
1: Not right now, but that's a great question. So the unemployment number only includes people who are actively looking for work. So if you are not looking for a job, you just don't have one, you won't be included as unemployed. And so we talk about the... uh, But how do
0: we determine who is and is not really looking for a job? Well, uh,
1: if you're eligible for unemployment, you actually, like, file a thing that says, this is how many jobs I applied for this week. So we have pretty good... We have pretty good numbers on that. There's a whole Bureau of Labor Statistics. But there are other issues with people who are employed who might be underemployed. So people who, especially in things like retail um, where maybe you have a job, but maybe this week you only got four hours on the schedule and next week you got 38 hours on the schedule and that kind of inconsistency is a problem. So even when, you know, that worker would be classified as having a job, but the week where they only had four hours because maybe it was a beautiful day and everyone went to the beach instead of a restaurant, they got the, you know, they didn't get to get called into work that day and, um, you know, they have problems. Yeah. The scheduling issue is something that both unions and then other organizations are working on. But there's lots of areas where we can say people have jobs, but they don't necessarily have good jobs like they used to. And some of that can be explained by the fact that not as many of them are covered by unions.
0: So um, this is the point in the podcast where it's like we're winding up. It's towards the end. Like, what have we not covered? What do people need to know about? Whether it's, uh, you know, labor, the economy, what you study. What do, what have I left out?
1: I would just say, you know, I think a lot the There's a new, there's many opinion polls that show a lot of people want a union who don't have one. And so thinking about what it would be like uh, if people who didn't have a union could have one. And the thing, uh, you know, the way to get a union is to start by talking to your coworkers. What's wrong? What's your experience at work? Could we could we do better if we acted collectively than each person going to the boss and sort of making an individual request? That might you know you might be fired for making an individual request. So I think you know I think people should talk to their coworkers more and figure out if a union would be helpful in your workplace. But just talk. Don't let the boss control the communication. Share what you're getting paid. Share the problems. Share your harassment stories. Share your racist and sexist experience at work whether they're from co-workers or bosses or customers or whatever it is you know talk to each other and start to think about could we organize to make things better for all of us
0: got it love that story do it um thank you so much thank for, you for kind of giving us your time and and really opening up our eyes on 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 labor and and uh and collective bargaining and and I just really appreciate your time Professor so thank you so much thank you you've been listening to Getting Curious with me Jonathan Van Ness my guest for this week's episode which first aired in 2018 was Rebecca Gibbon an associate professor of labor studies and employment relations at Rutgers University you'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and please show them how to subscribe. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JBN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Emily Bosick, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson with associate production by Alex Murphy.